up, everybody? Welcome back to the fifth episode of the Plug Podcast. I'm your host, Jimmy, along with Arturo, the Robot Kid, and everybody here at Mascot Agency. We have a special privilege today. In studio, we have Mike Wolf. He is a former Chief Justice of the Missouri Supreme Court, recently stepped down as the Dean of Law at St. Louis University. All around good dude, and today we'll be sitting down learning a little more about him. And when Mike Wolf talks, his words carry weight. Let's get right into it. Well, we're back on the fifth episode of the Plug Podcast. We have Mike Wolf. Arturo and Kevin in studio with us. Mike, I appreciate you coming back for the the sequel. We had so much fun the first time, so (laughs) had a little technical difficulty there, but uh, but we're back. So uh, before the before we got on here, our listeners got a little snippet of some of your uh, accolades and career achievements, Um, and we just wanted to take a minute to kind of get a little behind the scenes on. What makes you you and uh, kind of the current state of things? So, um, currently, kind of, what are you up to? You retired from SLU? I, I retired as dean of SLU Law School, and I'm uh, doing some consulting. I'm doing some writing. Uh, uh, and let's see what else am I doing? Legal Whatever writing, I want. Traveling. What? I'm doing a little bit of traveling, not much, but awesome. I'm gonna. I am gonna go uh, in May to uh, Pakistan. Wow. Uh, with a group that's going to go talk to some lawyers and judges in Pakistan about the death penalty. Wow. And so it'll so be fun. So have you ever been to the Middle East anywhere over nope, there? No, uh-uh. Okay. I've not been anywhere. Well, I've been to Nepal, but I've never been to India or Pakistan. Okay, that's going to be really yeah. cool. Are you right. nervous, excited? Like, yeah, I think it's going to be great. I, you know, um, it's fine. Do you think any shots for that? Like. No, no? I so. okay. I'm just wondering because I know certain no. places you have to go get like. You're the first person who asked me if I had to get shot. So those people <laughs> ask me if I'm going to get, get shot. shot at. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> that's probably a better, uh, more relevant question there. <laughs> uh, what, what's your stance in terms of where are they at on the death penalty and where where well, do you they, stand? Well, they have uh, uh, what I've been told is that they have nine thousand prisoners under death sentences. Wow. And so they have lawyers, and it's a very highly developed legal system. Uh, trying to sort out uh, some of the same legal issues that we have to confront, especially issues related to mental illness and, and culpability for uh, uh, for crimes that would take the death penalty. Now, what's their method? Is it is it don't traditional? Know. Don't know. Is don't it firing squad? They, I don't know how they execute people. That's that's interesting. Um, as far as like when death penalty and things like that are on the line, kind of. What would you say your overall judicial philosophy is on the correction system, um, on second chances and appeals, and kind of, is there ever a case for it? I, maybe in the national security sense. Uh, rarely in the domestic, in the domestic uh, setting. Uh, and I have to say, having reviewed those cases for 13 years as a judge of the Missouri Supreme Court, I don't think that there's anybody that I reviewed who I would consider very smart uh, or very rich. So uh, maybe smart, rich people don't commit 
murder. But yeah. On the other hand, <coughs> if you watch enough television, you're going to get a different idea. Yeah, so, exactly. Uh, yeah. So there, there it really is something. And the other, the other thing that's been shown has been some interesting studies that show that most of the death sentences in this country come from a relatively small number of counties, not really? states, like you know, like within wow. the state of Texas, counties. which has a lot. Yeah, counties. There'll be some, a few counties that, that account for almost all of them. That's uh, and it's true around uh, other states that have the death penalty. Um, typically, you know, uh, that's what happens. That's very there aren't there, you know, you might think, well, there's a high homicide rate in the city of St. Louis. It's actually, frankly, not that high. Considering our population. Yeah, but uh, relatively few death sentences out of the city of St. Louis. I think the jurors in the city are not as inclined as maybe some of the jurors out in uh, uh, the rural areas of our state would be. So we're much more likely to find somebody in the um, in the death sentence that's uh, from a small town. Now, is there any correlation that uh, is in the study that says, like, why these counties, like... I think it depends on the prosecutor. It depends uh, on the jurors. Okay. Um, yeah, I don't, I, I don't know. I haven't read the study as, to, as much as I should to answer that question, but I, I'd assume that there, there are differences. Some of it's just a matter of prosecutors exercising discretion. I mean, some prosecutors are fairly uh, uh, readily available to ask for the death penalty, it, and it, some of them almost never do. I mean, there's... Is, is that empathy and discretion, or do you think it's... No, I think it's some... some in, in a sense, it's... Uh, if you really think about it, uh, and it depends on how you look at it, if you see a, a person that's committed a... a, a pretty awful crime, I mean, murder is almost always an awful crime. You say, well, should I go through all this stuff to, go to get the death penalty? And all of the appeals, and spend years and years and years on appeals, and somebody might find something wrong with the way he was tried, and then they get Collected. to try it again yeah. and all that. Why don't we seek life without parole? In Missouri, life without parole means life without parole. That means you're not gonna see that person on the street again. Gotcha. I think, in a sense, uh, depending on what your values are. For me, that would be a harder sentence than just having somebody kill you. Yeah, I mean, it, absolutely. And especially if we can't repurpose that person to be yeah. useful somehow to society. Well, it's, some it's of them get quite useful inside the prison, but that's the only place they're going to be useful. You absolutely. know, some of them turn out to be fine. So that brings me to another question. What separates a good lawyer from a great lawyer? Um, part of it's talent. Okay. Part of its experience, uh, I think you have to lose a number of cases in order to figure out why you lost them. Yeah, you don't win so much. You learn more from losses than uh, I think games. there's some truth to that. You know, by that measure, I thought I was pretty well educated. Um. <laughs> what what, uh, what are some benchmarks of talent? Like, what would you say a talented lawyer is? It storytelling. I think somebody, yeah, somebody who really has a feel for being able to communicate to to tell a story to you know drive a narrative uh, to be quick on the quick on their feet um, yeah the charisma might be a little overrated um, sometimes you got very charismatic people who you really get undone by somebody who's just really better prepared I mean uh, there's no separate there's really in many cases there's no substitute for being really well prepared so we're in the marketing game so we understand the uh, appearance and facades and sure. packaging. 
do you think that how much in a courtroom in as far as in a in a jury setting do you think it's just people look at maybe it's the defense or maybe it's the uh person being accused of something and make their decisions based up you know kind of have earplugs on but make their decisions based up upon just physical appearances or I, I think that what people have to realize about the courtroom setting with jur I'm talking about with jurors mm -hmm. with judges probably not so much jurors don't have anything to do in that courtroom except watch and they notice it collectively they notice everything so a person who comes into that courtroom should be dressed appropriately uh, should act appropriately. I mean, sometimes lawyers can get a little snarky and wild and crazy and the juries maybe like them for it. Uh, oftentimes they won't like them for it. Uh, so you have to um, measure everything you do. They, they notice if you have somebody, if you have a client who's a business person, a business guy who comes into court in a $3,000 suit and sits there and reads the Wall Street Journal while his case is being tried, <laughs> Little and jurors are going to notice yeah. that, okay? Uh, there's a famous clip uh, on the 60 Minutes show about uh, uh, Jerry Spence of uh, Wyoming, who was trying a case involving the uh, publisher of Penthouse magazine. Larry. His client was being sued by a Miss Wyoming who claims that she had been uh, maligned in, in, a, in a parody, I guess it was, in the magazine. And, uh, the publisher came in and he was dressed in purple velvet pants. <laughs> and he was complaining to the interviewer about this lawyer making fun of his purple velvet, velvet pants. And they flashed the screen to Pence and he was Spence and he's saying, well, if you come into a Wyoming courtroom in purple velvet pants, you're going to have to expect that somebody's going to say something. Yeah, there's and that'd some be explaining me. to do. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Especially Wyoming. Oh, yeah, right. I heard back when smoking was allowed in the courtroom, yeah. that certain people would put, you know, like it, you would get the ash really long. Something that to was take a famous jurors. diversion. I think it was Clarence Darrow or somebody who did that. Put a put a wire in his cigarette, like a paper clip, yeah, paper clip wire, and the ash would be there, and everybody would be transfixed, waiting for the for the <laughs> when the That's when so the ash was going to fall so off. So genius, yeah. Yeah, it was. Uh, when I was first trying cases, people would try smoke in courtrooms, but not during the proceedings. And they would have ashtrays under, under the counsel table. And when the jury went out and the court was on recess, that you could bring the ashtrays up and, wow. and smoke just, during the break. Wow. I mean, we have become a much better society since yeah. then. I mean, you don't have to smell smoke unless you want to, unless you're smoking right. yourself. How long, did, how long did that take to happen? Like, Pardon? When was the last time that I think in the 80s, sometime in the 1980s. 80s. Yeah, because yeah. I remember when I was younger and I was on a plane, you know, there used to be like yeah. the smoking light and then you could... The smoking just, section. Yeah. I can only imagine smoking in an airplane. Yeah. Well, that's right. I mean, they put the smoking section in the rear of the plane, but, it's, but the air circulation in the plane circulates yeah. the air yeah. everywhere. So basically, so you get the freshest what, what smoke. What difference does it make? You get the back, up, wow. uh, back up front. Um, what, what made you decide to go into law? Kind of with... with I know... I was, um, I graduated from college and, I, and I, it was one of the things that attracted me that it would be something I could be a useful way to make a living. I was actually working uh, when I went to Minneapolis, back to Minnesota. I got a job on the Minneapolis Star for the summer 
as a copy editor, and then I switched over to being a reporter after that, and I worked as a reporter during law school. And I thought about staying in that business, but I thought law would be a much more uh, autonomous way to make a living. I, you know, I, newspapers, you're always working for somebody else, uh, not necessarily for yourself. Uh, and back in those days, newspapers were all owned by major families. Mm-hmm. And I noticed that my father's name wasn't in the masthead of the uh, <laughs> Minneapolis Star and Tribune Company. So I thought, well, maybe I should go someplace else. Didn't have the Mike Wolf Times out it there. Wasn't, no, it was not. There was not there, my father was not the publisher. Far from it. How do you see, uh, I guess, so much has changed with technology and the sharing of information and, and things of that nature. What challenges do you see that providing? Like, kind of, how do you see the landscape changing uh, over the last couple years as far as, like, just, you know, I, as far as kind of uh, freedom of speech, um, things of that nature? We've, yeah, we've got an awful lot of speech around, as you probably noted. We've got the internet, we've got cable TV, we've got all sorts of voices. I mean, through much of my lifetime, there were three television networks, actually three radio networks, and uh, uh, and some and, and newspapers were newspapers and news magazines. There are relatively few sources. Now everybody's in the information business. Yeah. Everybody's in the news business, and we can micro-target to the audience we want. And that's had a lot to do with politics. You've been yes. listening to people talk about. The bubble. Um, they, they do, how they identify people by their preferences and so forth. And I noticed just recently the Congress changed the law so that these uh, data companies can sell your data and my data yeah. to data aggregators so that they can now micro-target me because they know what I've bought, what websites I've been on, just all that kind of stuff. What you like. And they know. Down to like the right. brand toothpaste. So anyway. the idea of privacy in the information age uh, may either be an artifact of a previous generation or maybe just a total joke. But I, I do think that we are much more exposed uh, to uh, people who would manipulate us. Absolutely. Uh, so, you know, they send me stuff that they think I might like. Right. Well, maybe I won't. Yeah, absolutely. Maybe we should all try to do something different than what yeah, we're expected to do. Yeah, and, and you know, I think kind of like back to your point where there was less sources of information obviously uh they they couldn't control what you think but they could control what you think about by kind of controlling the, t- yeah. the conversations i think newspapers and later the network tv people had a lot to do with choosing the topics that were being discussed and now they don't have that kind of power anymore yeah um, i agree and, and the other thing that's really different is that uh, the major newspapers still have editors. They still have people who will say, either virtually or right in front, right in their face, to a writer or reporter, where did you get this information? Gotcha. Can you verify this? You know, what is this? Is this a fair statement and that kind of thing? So you, Integrity. you had editors. Now, if you got people, you can tweet and you can uh, yeah. go, go blog without uh, having anybody edit your stuff. I mean, I was... A copy facts. editor, I would sometimes have to go ask somebody who was 20 years older than I was, oh, well, how did you get that? Like, get is, that? that is that true? <laughs> That's, that sounds a little ridiculous. And then they would have to say, well, no, this is what so-and-so told me, this is what so-and-so told me. You know, I, 
usually I would leave it to somebody who was a little older than I to go ask those questions. But that yeah. was our job was to ferret out the uh, the implausible. Which is which is interesting because I think we're so readily uh, inundated with information now that vetting it and and sourcing it yeah. is really tough everything sounds believable now yeah absolutely right? and, and if you're in your bubble and and you think with like-minded you know everybody kind of no. wants to feel like nobody wants to feel like they're on an island by themselves so right. you look for general consensus and you know things like that but uh what are some what are some things that you think are could work better with our current legal system um in terms of uh punishment methods rehabilitation um just mandatory uh Sentencing. I think that we could eliminate uh, mandatory minimum sentencing and probably improve our criminal justice system. You would then have a much more discretionary system with judges, which may sometimes be for better or for worse. But the other thing that we do that other major Western civilizations do not, we are much more harsh in terms of the length of our sentences, of the length of our prison sentences. I think once you put somebody away for about 20 years, that's uh, most of their life, regardless of how old they are. They're not, you know, they're not going to get much better in prison, by and yeah. large. Some of them do. So we're not going to keep you too much longer. We know it's raining, but you probably don't want to go get caught in the rain anyways. Yeah, well, I got my car parked right outside. I left my raincoat in the car, by the way, because it was soaked from the last place I was. I hear that. Um, walk us through some of your more... Uh, critical or uh, ethical, toughest ethical decisions you've had to make and how you uh, went about approaching those in terms of being responsible for somebody else's, uh, you know, yeah, fate to a certain degree? I think that, that uh, in terms of, of how you conduct what you're doing, especially in, if you're in, uh, on a public payroll like a judge is, is that and, I, and I'll, I'll just give you an example of going back to when the internet, or when the email first came about. Um, nobody really knew what that, what that was or what it was for, and then they said, oh yeah. But it occurred to me, and some, and some of the people that I, because at the time I was working in the governor's office, is that if you put it in an email, somebody's gonna find it someday. So the rule should, really should be, don't put anything in an email that you wouldn't want to see spread throughout the internet or on the front page of the newspaper or whatever. So we, we've gotten much more, uh, I, mean, more I mean, look at all the stupid things people say in emails. Yeah. Mm -hmm. I, mean, yeah. Um, I mean, people say stupid things in phone conversations too, mm -hmm. but, but they're usually not recorded. Yeah, um, the, absolutely. Um, but the other thing is that I think that Another part of the ethics that I think lawyers have to be concerned about at all times is the confidentiality of, their, of our clients' information. Um, and that gets harder to do as well because you're used, when you get an email from a lawyer, not me, I don't have this morning yet, I probably should, there's usually something about a paragraph long that said, this is intended to be a confidential communication, yada, 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 inadvertently, please, that I'd, well, that's well and good, but if somebody sends me something and it's got some really cheesy information in it, well, why would, well, it's still okay, it was intended to be, a, I don't know what that means. Yeah. So there's a whole lot of, of I think, uh, and I think the temptations now are different, they're always the same, but if, 
something is too good to be true, it probably isn't true. Uh, so there, there's, a, there's a number of ways that, that um, I think the rules have stayed the same, but the opportunities, the different ways in the which they come up changed a have bit. changed, yeah. And, and probably not for the better, just more challenging. Yeah, but I, you know, the thing is that there's good things too. You've seen I mean, some improvements. We can, you know, we can do a lot more uh, in terms of of uh, litigation of commercial disputes. You've got uh, things that you can put on, uh, you know, in computerized formats, and you can search uh, documents. You you save a, it can be very time consuming. Having said that, however, an awful lot of modern litigation is just the discovery process of gobs and gobs of people's records and documents, just what I was complaining about a moment ago. Yeah, but I've seen some um, of those it's a lot piles easy, of paper. It's a lot easier to do than yeah. piles of paper. The I mean, Bates numbering and the... When I, when I came in as a lawyer, there were people who worked in large law firms in these big antitrust and other big commercial cases where they'd have warehouses full of file cabinets. And these young lawyers would be spending part of their life going through those. A paralegal have to know how to pull that exact one document out of. Yeah, but we lawyers, the lawyers were working so cheap that they couldn't afford paralegals. Oh, so it was them doing it. <laughs> yeah, right. Yeah. Yeah. I see. Things have gotten a little better now. I think. I don't know. Absolutely. Um, so being a uh, so practicing law and teaching law, uh, did you learn certain things? when you started teaching that maybe the practice didn't give you? Maybe a, maybe a bit. I think it, it gave you, teaching gives you time to think about some of the decisions that you might be making rather quickly. So in a sense, become more reflective uh, in the teaching setting. But um, because until you actually have a client for whom you're making these decisions, it's all theory. It's all theoretical. It's all abstract. It becomes very concrete once you start talking about whether how this is going to affect your client's business or his life. Absolutely. What's some of the best advice you give to your uh, your students, or you did? Um, don't take yourself too seriously. Uh, uh, don't. I mean, treat people the way you would want to be treated. Um, you know, those those values don't change much. Um, I have to say that uh, I always like what Maya Angelou's quote about. People won't remember my, very often what you said, but they'll always remember how you made them feel. Uh, every time I've broken that rule, I've, uh, I've, I've suffered for it. Yeah, there's no, no uh, you know, actions speak louder than words, and so uh, people remember that. Um, well, we know you're a So are you guys, I hope. <laughs> We're pretty busy, but we always got time for you. Huh? Um, one quick thing, uh, you know, we had some time to, uh, last time we saw each other was at the uh, Meds and Foods for Kids Gala. Yeah. Um, you have an amazing wife doing amazing things. Um, a lot of people say you guys are power couples. Any, I don't know about our, I think. <laughs> any advice for uh, finding the, the right person and, and being able to give both, you know, in a relationship, giving everybody. I think you better be lucky. Lucky? Yeah, you better be lucky. And probably treat people right. Pardon? Treat people the way you want to yeah, be treated. Yeah, I think that's probably right. But I think, uh, I, you know, there's an awful lot of, I mean, what people probably understand, and I think the older you get, the more you understand it, is that some of the good things that happen to you and some of the bad things that happen to you are sometimes things that just are a matter of luck. Yeah.
Uh, you can sort of make your own luck, but up to a point. So we'll have to get Arturo a rabbit's foot, lucky rabbit's foot, and maybe uh, yeah. <laughs> but in the uh, in the game of life and love, yeah, <laughs> the love the love factor. So any ladies out there listening, Arturo, yeah. <laughs> well, Mike, we really appreciate it. Uh, this was fun. We yeah. truly uh, appreciate you doing it for a second time, and we'll right. love to have Good. you back at, at another. All right, point. cool. All right. All right. See you guys. Thank you.